You're listening to a sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at harvestniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Amen. Well, good morning. It is a real pleasure to be here with you this morning. I, um, I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of the book of Matthew. The story of the wise men is usually associated with Christmas, but the reality is that this story happens about 18 months to two years after the birth of Jesus. And so it's really not a Christmas story at all. What it is, in fact, is Matthew really giving us the first glimpse of his major overall theme, the sort of the major narrative of his book, and that is that Jesus is the King, that Jesus is Lord. I want to read this passage of Scripture with you, and I want you to, as I read it, think about that perspective as we begin in Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Behold, wise men from the east came from Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all of Jerusalem was troubled with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, or Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I may too come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, They departed to their own country by another way. So as I begin this morning, I just want to point something out, which I think is really fascinating. Matthew doesn't take time to introduce who these wise men are. He he doesn't explain who they are. He doesn't sort of give us uh, a whole lot of information about them. He just says, wise men from the east came. It's almost like he expects his Jewish readers, because Matthew is written to a primarily Jewish audience, it's almost as if he expects his readers to understand who these people are and why they had come. Now, there's probably a number of reasons for this, but I'll give you my theory as to why I think he doesn't introduce the wise men and give us more detail about who they were. I believe that these wise men were part of a group of wise men that were descended from the wisest of all the wise men in the East, 
a man by the name of Daniel. Now, you know the story of Daniel in the Old Testament. Daniel, as a young man, was taken from Jerusalem to Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar when the armies of Babylon um, basically overran Jerusalem and destroyed it, destroyed the temple. So 600 years before this, in the book of Daniel, we read in chapter 2, verse 48, that Daniel had been made chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And every Jewish kid learned this story at his mother's knee, that Daniel had become the chief prefect of all the wise men in the East. So the question is, why was he made chief prefect of the wise men? The reason is because Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream, and in his dream, he saw this statue. It had a head of gold and a chest and arms of silver and kind of a waist and torso made of brass or bronze and legs that were made of iron and clay. And as Nebuchadnezzar's dreaming, suddenly this stone that is not made by human origin or with human hands comes and hits the statue and destroys it. And after a moment, this stone that has destroyed the statue begins to grow and grow and grow. And it fills the entire earth. Daniel was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar not only what he had dreamt, but what the meaning of the dream actually was. So Daniel tells Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, the statue represents four great world empires that are going to come into existence. The first is the golden head is you, Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian Empire. The next, the silver chest, that is the Medo-Persian Empire, followed by the Greek Empire, and lastly, the Roman Empire. Four great empires that would dominate world history. And then Daniel says, the stone that you saw, Nebuchadnezzar, the stone that was not made by human hands or without human origin, that would come and crush all these empires is what God is going to do when he establishes his kingdom on earth. The kingdom, his eternal kingdom under the rule of his Messiah King that will grow and grow and grow and ultimately fill the whole earth. So Daniel was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamt And what the dream had meant. That in the days of the fourth empire, the Roman Empire, God was going to do something fascinating. God was going to do something amazing. God was going to do something world-changing. He was going to establish his eternal kingdom. And put his Messiah on the throne. Jesus the King. And if you go back to Daniel chapter 9, Daniel also gives us very clearly the timeline about when this new kingdom, God's kingdom, God's eternal kingdom, was actually going to come into existence. He tells us in sort of cryptic language that we don't have time to really kind of go into today, but in, in cryptic language, he tells us that 490 years After the decree would be given to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, remember, Jerusalem had been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. 490 years after the the temple and the city had been destroyed, 
there would be a decree given. 490 years after that decree would be given, Messiah would come. The decree was given, we read about it in Ezra chapter 7. The decree was given by Artaxerxes, the king of the Medes and the Persians, in 457 B.C., so I believe, this is my theory, I believe that these wise men who were descendant from, from Daniel did the math. They subtracted 490 from 457 B.C. And when they saw the star in the sky, they realized that the king had been born because God's eternal kingdom that would destroy and crush all other kingdoms was going to be established in what we would call 33 A.D., The wise men did the math, and when they saw this star, this symbol, they realized that God's eternal kingdom was about to be established on earth. The king that David had predicted would sit on his throne. That ruler who would come from outside of eternity, according to Micah chapter 2, that one that would be born of a virgin who would rule and reign That one that God had promised all through the Old Testament had finally been born. And so they followed the star from the east going to Israel to discover this new king. And see, Matthew wants us to understand this is not just a cute little story about a baby being worshipped. It is more nuanced than that. And we've got to understand that if we understand the book. This is Matthew telling us Yes, there are all kinds of kings, and yes, there are all kinds of lords, but the final, ultimate king, the king of kings, and the lord of lords has finally come, and he deserves our submission, because he's the king. Matthew didn't introduce these wise men to his readers, because his readers, I believe, knew exactly who they were. No introduction was necessary because the king that Daniel had anticipated, that he had prophesied about, had finally come. So I want us to ask the question this morning as we think about this passage of Scripture. What does it mean that Jesus is king? As I said, the passage is far more nuanced than that. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew does something here that is fascinating. Because clearly there are people who are not excited about this new king. There are people here who are pretty apathetic, as a matter of fact, about the fact that a king has come. And I think for some of us as Christians, it's important to ask ourselves the question, how do we respond to the rule and the reign and the sovereignty of Jesus? How should we respond For many of us, it's easy to say, yes, Jesus is king. I understand that intellectually. I understand that theologically. But does it really reach home? Does it really hit us where we live? Does it impact how we live our lives? Does it fundamentally change how we live our lives? Has the truth of Christ's sovereign reign in our world, the fact that he established an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed, that he established his kingdom on earth at his resurrection, has that really gripped us? And is it changing us today? Is it changing how I live my life 
today, how I go to work tomorrow, what I do in terms of my family relationships and my marriage, how I raise my kids, what I do with my money, what I do with my free time, has it genuinely impacted my life? So I just want to ask this question. When Jesus is king, what difference does it make? And the first thing I want to point out is this, is that when Jesus is king, I'm not. When Jesus is king, I'm not. By the time that Jesus had been born, Herod the Great had been king for many decades, king of the Jews in Israel for many decades. He had been given that role by Caesar Augustus himself. And he was a cruel tyrant that held on to power at all costs. He he thwarted and destroyed and subjugated all opposition to his rule. So when the wise men came looking for a new king, a new king of the Jews, the Bible tells us that Herod was troubled and all of Jerusalem was troubled as well. It's kind of like that old saying, you know, when mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. It's the same thing in Jerusalem. When Herod's not happy, ain't nobody happy because he makes everybody's life miserable. He was a maniacal, crazy man who held on to power at all costs. History tells us that when he thought his wife was plotting against him, he had her killed. When he thought two of his sons were plotting against him to take power, he had his sons killed. It's said that when he knew that he was dying, he ordered the prominent citizens in Jerusalem, many prominent citizens in Jerusalem, arrested and ordered that when he died, they would be executed so that there would be genuine mourning in Jerusalem. That's the kind of man this, this man was. So when we read in the next few verses about him killing these children in Bethlehem, it shouldn't surprise us because he was a cruel tyrant who held on to power at all costs. And Jerusalem was troubled because he was not willing to relinquish his power. He wanted no one to tell him what to do. He enjoyed his autonomy. He enjoyed his power, his absolute power. And so right at the beginning of the book, we see this contrast between the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and his reign and the kingdom of Herod and his reign. Herod simply did not want to yield to another king. And the story forces us to think, and Matthew wants us to think about this question, who is king? Because when Jesus is king, I can't be. When Jesus is king, when I acknowledge that he is sovereign, when I acknowledge that he is Lord and master, I cannot be king any longer. Who is the final authority in my life? Who is in control? Who has the final word? I think many of us are conditioned to think like King Herod thought. I'll give you an example of how this is kind of ingrained in us and inculcated in us, and we're not even conscious that it's happening. Every Remembrance Day, we talk and appropriately talk about those men and women who went to war, many of whom gave up their lives so that we could have freedom. And that's a wonderful thing. It's important that we remember that. But the struggle is, how do we define freedom? Sometimes we define freedom as absolute and complete autonomy. Freedom to do whatever I want to do. And we sort of enjoy this sense of liberty from any constraints and any, any control. And we think it's our right to live autonomous. 
Personally, I believe, and again, this is just my theory, but I believe that Matthew had Daniel chapter 2.44 in mind. And I want to just flip back there and read this passage to you. Daniel chapter 2.44, when Daniel is explaining to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what Daniel says to Nebuchadnezzar, prophetically. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all other kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it, the kingdom of God, shall stand forever. You see, Daniel said that the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ would destroy every other kingdom. And that includes my petty, selfish kingdom. That sort of autonomous zone that I want to hold on to and live in. When Jesus is king, I can't be. When Jesus is king, he must reign over every facet of my life. He must reign over my bank account. He must reign over my private life. He must reign over my leisure time. He must reign in my marriage. He must reign over my comforts, my retirement plans, my identity. He is the final word. Lots of people think that they are Christians. And they labor under this Satanic illusion, and I use those words carefully, but, I, but they're, I believe they're appropriate. This satanic illusion that we can have Jesus as my Savior and not my King. And that simply is not consistent with what the Scriptures teach. When Jesus saves us, He becomes our Sovereign. He becomes our King. And we don't have a choice. If Jesus is Savior, he must be sovereign. He must be king. He requires us to yield. His sovereignty forces us to bend the knee and acknowledge who he is. I want to tell you a story about George Mueller. Do you remember George Mueller of Bristol? He was a famous man, lived in the 19th century. He was born in 1805. He was famous for his orphanages. He built orphanages in Britain and cared for about 10,000 orphans during his lifetime. Also, a lot of people don't know this, during his lifetime, he opened 120 schools, I'm sorry, 117 schools, and educated about 120,000 underprivileged kids. At the age of 71, his wife passed away and he remarried. And at that age, at 71, he began a second missionary career. A second career as a missionary. And for 17 years of his life, he served God as a missionary. Now, there was a man who understood what it meant to bring every facet of his life under the sovereign control of the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is what he said. He said, there was a day when I died. There was a day when I died to self to my preferences, taste, and will. There was a day when I died to the world, its approval or censure. I died to the approval or blame even of my brethren or friends. And since that time, I have studied to show myself approved only unto God. 
When Jesus is king, that has to be our only, it, it must be our only response. If he is Lord, he must have the final say, the final word in our lives. When Jesus is king, God crushes and puts to end our kingdom. He brings our life into conformity with his plan and his will. He is our rightful ruler and our rightful king. But secondly, I think the passage wants to show us something else. And that is when Jesus is king, I become passionate about relationship. Here it calls together the wise men, the scribes, and the chief priests. And he's, he's kind of panicked, I think, because these noble, wealthy men from the east have come looking for this new king. And Herod wants to find out where this king is, this young child is, so he can destroy him. And so he says to the chief priests and the scribes, tell me, where's the pro- where do the prophets say this child should be born? And they go and they look through the old scrolls and they find this passage in Micah chapter 2. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to turn there. Micah chapter 2, I'm sorry, chapter 5, beginning at verse 2. And this is what it says, Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now listen to this. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. The New American Standard translates that from the days of eternity. And then it goes on, and as, as, as the prophecy goes on, It says this, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So the the scribes and the chief priests went and they studied that passage of scripture. They go back to Herod, they tell Herod about the fact that Jesus is to be born just down the hill in Bethlehem, the Messiah who is coming it's about five kilometers away, down in Bethlehem. That's where the prophet says he's coming from, the city of David, the one who's going to reign on David's throne. So Herod sends the wise, uh, sends the wise men, follow the star, go to Bethlehem, find the king, tell me so that I can come down and ostensibly worship him too. What strikes me every time I read this passage, and what becomes starkly obvious when you think about it, is what the chief priests and the scribes and the religious leaders did. Now think about this. According to Daniel, according to the scripture, according to these wise men, everything that Old Testament prophecy and teaching had been pointing to had happened. The Messiah had been born. The one who was going to reign on David's throne had come. The one who was going to be born of a virgin. The one who was coming from outside of time. The one whose name was Emmanuel, God with us. The one who was wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. That one had come. Now remember, these people knew their Bibles. And what's stunning and what's appalling is what they didn't do. 
They stayed put in Jerusalem. They didn't make the trip to Bethlehem. Literally, if they had just allowed their knees to buckle, they could have rolled to Bethlehem. It's just downhill all the way. It's not far. It wouldn't have been an arduous journey. It would have been the easiest thing in the world. But they could have cared less. And so the question that we ask is, why? Why such apathy? Why such indifference to the coming of the Messiah? I think the answer is pretty obvious because it's, it's repeated over and over and over again throughout the rest of Matthew. It's that these re- religious leaders really didn't need a Messiah. They weren't looking for a Messiah because they had their religion. They had the temple, they had the sacrificial system, they had their laws, they had their traditions. They didn't need anything else. They were quite content with religion. They were content with the symbols of their religion and weren't really looking for the substance that God said was to come. They didn't see pursuing a relationship with the Messiah as an important thing at all. If you're a Christian, if we're Christians, and yet we have no appetite for a relationship with Jesus, then there is something significantly wrong. If we call ourselves Christians, but have no appetite for a relationship with the living God, then it's very likely that we have religion as opposed to relationship. If you have a If you have no time for Jesus, no time to be intimate with him, no time to make that journey from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem, to be with him, to respond to his invitation to come, to be together, to find that quiet place, to close the door, to pray, to be in his word, to meditate upon him, to worship him personally. If that is not you, it's very likely that what you have is religion religion as opposed to relationship. It may be evangelical religion. It may be orthodox religion, but it's still religion. You religiously go to church and you religiously tithe and you religiously serve and you religiously lead a moral life. The greatest obstacle to genuine salvation, to authentic salvation is religion. And that's what these men had. They had religion. They knew their Bibles, but they had religion. They weren't interested in a relationship. They were comfortable in Jerusalem because religion's safe. Religion's comfortable. Religion's like an old pair of slippers. They just slip on. It feels good. Religion feels good. Religion says, check the boxes. Follow the rules. Keep the laws. Be good. Be moral. And you will go to heaven. And it's a lie as we know. Genuine faith begins in relationship. And moves into a life of devotion and obedience and service. But religion doesn't save us. Jesus does. That's why when John 17, when Jesus was praying for us, he says to the Father, this is eternal life. That they would know you, the only true God, And me, 
the Christ whom you have sent. The wise men should remind us that in this new kingdom, this living dynamic kingdom of which we are a part, that religion is dead. The religion doesn't accomplish anything. That what we're called into is a living, vital relationship with God. And when you really get that, when we really understand that, when we really understand who Messiah is and what he came to do, we rush from religion down into relationship. We move from Jerusalem to Bethlehem instinctively because we want to be with Christ. We want to know him, whom to know is life eternal. Thirdly, when Jesus is king, I have real joy. The Bible tells us that these guys rejoiced They fell down, they worshiped, they rejoiced, they were filled with an exceeding joy. Think about it. After 600 years, this cast of noble wise men from the east had been looking generation after generation after generation after generation for the fulfillment of what all the prophets had spoken about. And finally it had come. Finally, they were the ones privileged to be there, and they rejoiced with a joy, an exceedingly great joy. Now think about what you know. Think about what we know. We know so much more than they knew. We know about the cross. We know about his, Jesus' substitutionary death on our behalf. We know that he lived a perfect life. Then on the cross, God poured out his wrath upon his son and gave us his righteousness. That that great transaction of the cross saved us. That the blood of Christ now cleanses us from all of our sin. Think about, think about what we know that we have eternal life because we have been born again by the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God that dwelt in a cloud and a pillar of fire over the tabernacle, that same Spirit now dwells in us, those of us who know Jesus. And that's why the Apostle Peter says, we rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, 1 Peter 1.8. As Christians who understand that Jesus is king, that he has conquered death, that he has conquered our sin, that he has purchased us with his blood, that he loves us with an eternal... When we understand that, we rejoice with a joy that is filled with glory. Do you have that joy? Does that joy mark your life? Does that joy undergird everything that goes on? So when you get bad news tomorrow at work, or your fiance breaks up with you, or a grandparent dies, or you find that you're disappointed in some way, and it's okay to feel grief and disappointment and sorrow and and frustration, but underneath it, is there a joy that sustains you? Is there a joy that carries you through those dark moments? those moments of disappointment, those moments of despair. When Jesus is king, we have joy, inexpressible and filled with glory. 
A joy that the world can't replicate. A joy that only comes from knowing Christ. A lot of us don't have that joy sometimes. Sometimes we're robbed of that joy. There's a lot of reasons why, but I want to talk about one in particular. I think sometimes we don't have the joy that the Lord wants to give to us because we have a little bit of residual religion still kicking around in our souls. And we've got to rid ourselves of that. I've been reading, actually, I've read this book twice now called Gentle and Lowly. Uh, It's a wonderful book. I I highly recommend it to you. This is what, this is a summary, uh, the author's summary of what Thomas Goodwin, who was a, um, a Puritan, born in 1600, lived from 1600 to 1680, uh, a great godly man, great preacher. But this is a summary of what he, how he speaks about Jesus' heart towards sinners. Listen to what he says. If you're a part of Christ's own body, your sin evokes his deepest heart his compassion, and his pity. He takes part with you. That is, he's on your side. He sides with you against your sin, not against you because of your sin. He hates sin, but he loves you. We understand this, says Goodwin, when we consider the hatred the father has against a terrible disease afflicting his own child. The father hates the disease while loving the child. Indeed, in some level, The presence of the disease draws out his heart to the child all the more. What Goodman is saying in that that passage is that God's love for us is drawn from his heart to us because of our sin. And I think sometimes we have a hard time getting our heads around that. And the problem, as I said, is religion. When we sin, when we do things that we know are against God's will, and we've, we, we feel shame, we feel disappointment in ourselves, we feel that we have let him down, and there's something within us wired into our nature that causes us to say, I need to clean myself up just a little bit. I, I, need, to, I need to show God that I'm, that I'm really sorry. I'm going to work hard at being better. I feel like I've let him down. I don't think he would really want to see me right now. I don't think I'm, I'm really in a, in a good place, so I can't go rushing into his presence. I've got to earn a little bit of his favor back. And that's just all, it's all lies. When we sin, God invites us back instantly. He says, come. It's your sin, it's the disease of sin that breaks God's heart for us, like a father who watches his child suffering with a terrible illness, the father's heart, the mother's heart is drawn to that child. That's our father's heart for us. And when we sin because of the cross, we are called and we have every right, every freedom to go rushing into his presence and expect that his arms are wide open to us. So often we don't know the joy that God wants us to know in the gospel and in grace because we have a little bit of religion. That that residual residue of, of religion is still in our souls. And when we're suffering because of our sin 
And when we have disappointed God and we've disappointed ourselves and we feel unworthy of his love, that's the exact time he calls us. He says, come, come to me. I have nothing in my heart except love and compassion and grace and mercy for you. Come, I wanna, I want a relationship. I love you. My love isn't changed because of your failure. My love for you doesn't change because of your sin. As a matter of fact, it's your sin that causes me to love you more. There's a lot of joy that we rob ourselves of. A lot of peace that we rob ourselves of by simply not believing what the gospel says. And the gospel teaches that Jesus loves us. That God poured all of his anger for my sin. Sins I have committed, sins I might commit today, sins I'm going to commit tomorrow. All of that, all of his anger, all of his just holy wrath was poured out on Jesus. And the only thing left in the heart of God for you and for me, if we're in Christ, if Jesus is my king, is love and acceptance and compassion. So never let the devil tell you you're not worthy, you're not good enough, you're not clean enough, you haven't been good enough to go into the presence of God. You're a child of the king and you are dearly and deeply and eternally and unconditionally loved by the Father because of the king, because of what Jesus has done for us. You're loved with a love that will never let you go. So joy, fourthly, quickly, we worship. So these wise men, these noble men, came and they, they prostrated themselves before Jesus. They bowed down and they worshiped him. And they gave him gifts of gold and, and frankincense and myrrh. That was the custom of of people who would go and and welcome a new king to his throne from another kingdom. They would acknowledge his sovereignty, acknowledge who he was, and they would give him gifts. And these wise men came and they placed their gifts before him, but then they worshiped him. And so the wise men, fourthly, cause us to ask ourselves, what's my worship like? What's my response to the king? How do I respond to him in worship? Do I bow down? Do I offer myself, my gifts to him? You know, grace is not cheap. It should invoke from us a desire to give, a desire to sacrifice, a desire to serve. What does it cost us to follow Jesus? To honor him, to worship him. What sacrifice, what service, what tithe, what gift of time and energy are you prepared to give to your king? When Jesus is king, he demands our worship. He demands that we prostrate ourselves before him. He demands that we give of ourselves to him Again, it's easy to say, I worship Jesus and live a very selfish, independent, autonomous life. I know that in my journey, and I think I talked about this the last time I was here, in my journey, I've come to that place where I've, I've sort of 
semi-retired, I guess. And for the last number of years, I thought, selfishly, that it's going to be Paul time. And I'm going to retire, and I won't have the burden of the church anymore, and I won't have the burden of preparing a sermon every week, and I won't have the burden of caring for people and looking after a staff and all the other things that a pastor has to do. It was going to be my time. And God really challenged me. God really put his finger down and deep into my soul. I think maybe that's one of the reasons I shared you the story about George Mueller, who who at uh, 71 began a 17-year missionary career. And basically just said to me, Paul, that's not what I want for you. I want you to serve me. I want you to worship me. I've given you gifts and I want you to give them back. I've given you a calling and I want you to fulfill that calling until you can't do it anymore. So as I said when I was here last time, I don't know what God has in store for me, but my plan is to worship him with my life. And that's how we need to respond as well. Whether we're young, whether we're old, God has given us gifts and he's given us potential and he's given us time. And it's our responsibility to give it back, to come and give ourselves to him, worship him, as these men did. And lastly, and i got to be really careful here in what I say, but lastly, because the text really requires that we talk about it, lastly, if Jesus is king, I'm prepared to defy the state if and when necessary. These men had been given a responsibility by Herod. Remember, they're in his jurisdiction, and he is sort of the king. And they were given a mandate. Go and find where this child is. Come and tell me that I too may go and worship him. They were warned in a dream to return home another way, to not go back to Herod. And so what they did was they defied his authority. Even though they were in his jurisdiction and even though they were under his civil authority, they defied him because they had a new king and a new allegiance and a new priority. The loyalty to King Jesus is something that characterized the early church. In the first couple of chapters of Matthew, of Acts, you see it both in chapter 4 and, verse, and chapter 5. The disciples saying essentially this, you can tell us what you want us to do, but we must obey God rather than men. I believe the day is quickly approaching when Christians are going to be forced to ask themselves the question, who has ultimate authority in my life, the state or King Jesus? And I'm not talking about temporary lockdowns here or mask mandates and that kind of stuff. Although I do think we are going to have to as Christians eventually ask ourselves the question, how long are we prepared not to gather as, as, as the body of Christ but that's, 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 I'm not talking about what's going on right now. I'm talking about something much more serious. Um, I believe that we in the West have been lulled into a sense of complacency over these last 200 years. And the reason I say that we've been lulled into a sense of complacency is because for about 200 years now, since about the middle of the 17th century to, to about the 1700s, to the middle of the 1900s, because of the work of the gospel, because of the advance of the gospel, the, the ethic and the morality of the state and the ethic and the morality of the church found themselves very similar 
And that's something that's quite unique in, in, in church history, that the state and the church would share relatively similar values. But beginning in about 1960, the values of the church and the values of the state began to diverge pretty dramatically. And and today we're in a a situation where the church and the state, I believe, are on a collision course. I'll give you an example of that. Bill Bill C-6 something that's being debated in our parliament right now. And it's an act to criminalize conversion therapy. Pretty soon, if it's passed, it will be against the law for Christians, particularly pastors, to help people change their sexual sexual orientation or gender identity. That's a very, very serious thing. And we as Christians are going to have to decide, are we going to obey God or are we going to obey the state? What God says in 1 Corinthians 6 as an example, the ungodly shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And he, and he gives a list of examples, drunkards, people who are immoral, men who practice homosexuality. And then in verse 9, he says something wonderful. He says, but such were some of you, Corinthians, such were some of you. You were that way, but by the Spirit of God, you have been washed You've been justified, you've been sanctified, you've been converted, you've been changed. So we as Christians know what God calls us to in terms of morality and righteousness and and sexual purity. And we also know that people can change, that conversion to Christianity sometimes changes our sexual orientation. Sometimes it brings us into greater conformity with the, well, all the time it brings into greater conformity with the teachings of the Bible. And so, I believe that we are on a collision course with the state, because the state, in order to satisfy the demands of our pagan and increasingly immoral culture, is going to have to restrict what we say, or are going to feel compelled to restrict what we say. And the question is, how will we respond Will we simply say, well, it's the, the law says it, we must obey? Or will we say, we must obey God rather than men? Remember, it's important that just because something is the law does not mean it's moral, right? The people who were, who were trying to find Anne Frank in, in Holland in 1944 were obeying the law, and the people who were hiding her and other Jews were breaking the law. Just because something is law does not make it moral, right? So if we're going to be faithful to Christ, we as the people of God are going to have to make a decision to stand against the state. And that's a very, very difficult thing. It takes a ton of wisdom and a ton of prayer. But at some point in time, there is that moment when Jesus, if Jesus is king, we have to stand and say, I must obey God. The history of the church is filled with examples of men and women who did that. I was born and, and raised for the first part of my life in Scotland, and so I've been sort of always interested in the covenanters. They were men and women who signed a national covenant not to, not to allow the sort of the Catholic influence of, of Charles I and II 
to influence their worship. And they stood for the gospel and for the truth. And many of them died. Many of them lost their lives. They were told they couldn't worship. And so they met in the woods and in the glens of Scotland, breaking the law to worship God in the way that God had called them to worship. I'm not saying that we have come to that place yet in our journey as as Christians in Canada. But I do know that if Jesus is king and the divergence between biblical morality and what is required and accepted by the state continues to grow, that moment may come. And I just pray that God gives us the wisdom and the courage to know how to handle that when it does. So if Jesus is king, if Jesus is the king, that means I'm not, right? I'm not. If Jesus is king, I live in submission to him. He is my Lord, he is my master, he is my savior, and I orient my life to glorify him. If he is king, I live in relationship with him. I make that journey from Jerusalem down to Bethlehem regularly and consistently to live in relationship with him. If Jesus is king, I have real joy rooted in the gospel, rooted in the fact that I am loved unconditionally by a God who has saved me on the cross. If Jesus is king, I worship him enthusiastically. I give my life to him. And if Jesus is king, when it's time, I have to say, I have to obey God rather than man. Let's pray together and ask God's blessing upon us as we finish this message. Father, I just thank you so much for your word. I thank you that it speaks to us, that it encourages us. I thank you that it affirms to us that you are our king, that you're our God, that you're our Lord, and that we are your sheep, that we are your people. And I pray, Father, that you would just, by your Holy Spirit working in our heart this morning, this morning, orient our lives so that we might bring our life, our behavior, our thoughts, our actions into conformity with your truth and the fact that you are the king. So bless us to that end, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.